invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of 2 Samuel. While you do that, I'll mention something that has been beneficial to me throughout the years has been to take the bulletin, and at this time in particular, we've got the songs in the bulletin. Maybe you don't have a hymnal at home, something that I would encourage you to correct. We do have hymnals here also. It's available online. But to choose whatever perhaps was just your favorite song from a Lord's Day and sing it every day for the next week. Maybe begin your day that way or maybe bring that into your family. I found that, as I'm sure others of you have, to be so helpful in bringing us back into a sense of devotion to the Lord. Sometimes you don't know what to sing. Well, these things are chosen for a reason and it will bring your mind back to what we heard about as well. Now this evening we come to 2 Samuel chapter 2. 2 Samuel 2, and this particular passage that we're going to be in was the text that first caused me to want to preach through this book of the Bible. A number of months ago, back in June, as we were getting ready for the cadet campout, I happened to be reading through 2 Samuel devotionally, and I came to this passage, and I thought, what is this? What do you do with this text And usually the only way I can justify spending a significant amount of time reading commentaries on any particular passage is to try to preach from it. And it has been my experience that every portion of the word is valuable. If you'll dig in, it's like a mine. Sometimes you have to go pretty deep. But there will be gold. Other times it's like the the gold is just right there on the surface. Just pick it up. But either way, whether you have to go deep or you find it easy, the word is always valuable. Now, this particular passage, there's a context to it. I know there are a number of visitors here tonight, and I draw your attention just simply, that this is at a point in Israel's history, after David, of David and Goliath fame, has been made king, not over all the tribes of Israel, but over only one tribe, Judah. The other tribes have rallied behind a kind of pseudo-king. There is a general named Abner. He is the uncle of the former King Saul, and he chooses a king for himself. He chooses Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and props him up. Ishbosheth is pretty weak. Really, Abner is the power behind the power. David is doing what he can to avoid civil war. This is one of the aspects of him representing Christ to us, having the heart of God. He does not want there to be war among God's people. And so he's waiting on God to bring about the kingdom. At some point, then, you have Abner breaking this detente. Abner leads some forces out, probably not the whole of the army, but a representative portion, leads them out to the city of Gibeon. Why Gibeon? Well, that was at that time the site of where the tabernacle was, so this is a a major point spiritually for them. If you hold Gibeon, you've got a lot of power. And then also, if they could take Gibeon, Gibeon was the site of a certain well, a well that exists to this very day. So this is one that you could go see, and that means that this is a strategic point. If you can hold that spot, then you can stay there for a long time, even if you're under siege. If you've got water, you can fight. And so Abner goes out, and then David's forces, led by one of his generals, Joab, go out to meet him. And they are sat on either side of this well, and that brings us up to our story tonight. 
Now, I will advise you, we're not going to focus on verses 12 through 16. We're simply going to read through them. They provide context, but they may seem a little strange to you. Verses 12 through 16 describe how each army selects a number of men, 12 men, to go and fight. And it ends up being a fight to the death. You go, what is this here? Is this for amusement? Even though some translations will say, let them play before us or let them have a contest before us. But in the ancient world, this was a fairly common practice. In fact, it's probably best known to you through the story of David and Goliath. Remember, David and Goliath are representing whole armies. And the agreement that the two armies made was, whoever loses, that side is understood as having lost. And this was a way in the ancient world that they would try to avoid bloodshed, especially if you're dealing with a people who are in principle united together, as the tribes were, trying to avoid bloodshed. What quickly happens, though, is that they reach a stalemate. Both sides lose the same number of men, and it blows up into a full-scale battle. It's everything after that battle that our attention will go to. Let's give our attention to verse 12 and following. Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. And Joab, the son of Zeruiah, and the servants of David went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down, the one on the one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. And Abner said to Joab, let the young men arise and compete before us. And Joab said, let them arise. Then they arose and passed over by number, twelve for Benjamin and Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and twelve of the servants of David. And each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side, so they fell down together. Therefore that place was called Helkath Hazurim, which is the place of the stones, which is at Gibeon. And the battle was very fierce that day. And Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. And the three sons of Zeruiah were there, Joab, Abishai, and Asahel. Now Asahel was as swift of foot as a wild gazelle. And Asahel pursued Abner. And as he went, he turned neither to the right hand nor to the left from following Abner. Then Abner looked behind him and said, Is that you, Asahel? And he answered, It is I. Abner said to him, Turn aside to your right hand or to your left, and seize one of the young men and take his spoil. But Asahel would not turn aside from following him. And Abner said again to Asahel, Turn aside from following me. Why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift up my face to your brother Joab? But he refused to turn aside. Therefore, Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear, so that the spear came out at his back. And he fell there and died where he was. And all who came to the place where Asahel had fallen and died stood still. But Joab and Abishai pursued Abner. And as the sun was going down, they came to the hill of Ammah, which lies before Gia on the way to the wilderness of Gibeon. So ends the reading of God's word. Let's ask his blessing. Heavenly Father, we plead your blessing upon our time considering your word together, that you would speak, Lord, cause your word to find its right application. 
Guard us from error and grow us in every way that we would fight the good fight, that we would wage our war appropriate to your kingdom. We ask these things for the glory of our King Jesus, for in his name we pray. Amen. As I said at the beginning when I first read this passage, and when I read it a second time and a fourth time and a fifth time, I wondered why is this here other than simply recording the facts? And there are parts of scripture that I think we may never know much more than that they recorded the facts. We don't know all the purpose. And yet, as a rule, the apostles tell us that these things were written for our learning in order that we might gain wisdom. Now, there are parts of the Old Testament that are special pictures, symbols of Christ. And then there are parts, often in the very same passage, which are especially given to teach us wisdom. Both are valid. Both are necessary. Now, the Spirit's purpose in this passage might not be immediately clear, but I would place before you a parallel that I think, when you hear it, it will become very apparent. Asahel is fighting on the side of the Lord. He's fighting on the side of the chosen king and of the chosen kingdom. And so if there's a right side here, he's on it. And he is called to fight in a way that would lead towards victory. Now, we are not called into the same kind of fight for our faith. As it says in Ephesians 6, our enemies are not flesh and blood. There are times and places where physical combat is necessary, but in terms of enlarging the spiritual kingdom of Christ, we wage a different kind of warfare. 1 Timothy 6, verse 12 makes it clear, though, that martial imagery is totally appropriate to our calling. We should feel like we are in a fight because it says, fight the good fight of faith. Now, picture the soldiers, as it says, who come upon the body of Asahel, the grisly sight that they see. I'm sure it made some of us uncomfortable just to hear it read from the text, let alone to see something like that. And it says that they halted and looked at what they saw. And the Holy Spirit, through this story, desires you to do something similar, to stop and to look And to consider how you engage, how you fight the enemy that we are up against. How are you fighting? This is not hypothetical. This is real. This is every day that you are involved in a fight. And while on the one hand we want to learn from those who fight well, sometimes we actually learn some of the best lessons from those who fail in their fight. We ask strategic questions. Where did it go wrong? What can we learn here? And so this evening, Lord willing, we're going to consider three fairly straightforward lessons from this text. Three lessons that we learn from Asahel, or three exhortations, and I'll announce each of them as we come to them. I do want to state, Asahel is not an entirely ruined character in Scripture. He's not completely without commendation. There are good things about him, things that we do want to emulate. And that's true of Christians in general, isn't it? One of the blessings of reading Christian biography is to learn both the strengths and the weaknesses of others. And we should remember, even in the case of those who fall hard, that there is usually something good to learn from them. One of my favorite biographies is uh, published by Banner Truth. It's that of A.W. Pink. Very complicated man. Very colored life theologically. And yet wonderful to see his strengths. One of really the juggernauts theologically in his time and yet so complicated. 
Here you see one of Asahel's strengths in verse 19. And Asahel pursued Abner, and as he went, he turned neither to the right hand nor to the left hand from following Abner. Now there's a sense in which your pursuit of the enemy should be like that, where you bring the fight to the enemy, where you are single-minded. You don't swerve to the left hand or to the right hand. You don't stop and play games in Christian life. All of us need to be reminded of that. Don't stop and play games. Don't turn to the right, to the left. You keep going on a straight line, a narrow path. But there are also tremendous problems, as we're going to see in what Asahel does here. And this is our first lesson that we find. As I said, it's very straightforward. Do not underestimate the enemy, either in his tactical ability or his desire to destroy you. When the Bible talks about Satan, he is not describing something like on canned meat with a red costumed figure with a spade tail. And I'm sure the enemy rejoices at every caricature that sports teams or others use to make him seem like a cartoon. The being that the Bible describes is as lofty as any created thing. And his sole mission in his mind is to degrade all that he possibly can, to steal, to kill, and to destroy. We are not to underestimate our enemy. Now, who is Asahel's opponent here? Abner. Abner, just think about who he is for a moment. He is a general, the general, living at a time in history when generals stood at the front of the battle line. And he's survived for decades, and he's older. He's the uncle of Saul. This man has seen things. He is strong, fierce, and he's the kind of man who knows not only when to fight, but he knows when to leave when to conserve his strength. He didn't flee simply because, oh, he's scared. This is a tactical maneuver. He still wants to kill everyone he can. And not only is he strong, he's cunning. And you get the sense of this, the fact that he's ready to fight even when he seems on the run. Asahel thinks, oh, I've got the upper hand. His back is to me. And I Personally, I doubt that this is the first time that Abner would have practiced or used this move of the back end of a spear to kill someone. This is not only strength, the kind of strength of... I, I don't know, but I'm guessing it's not easy to drive a pole through a person. He's strong, he's cunning, he's deadly. And the Lord would call to your mind, if Abner can be that dangerous, how much more dangerous is our enemy? Sometimes he is his most dangerous when he seems like he's on the run. Have you not experienced that? You feel like you're experiencing a measure of growth and victory in your Christian life. You've had a great week. That sin that you normally struggle with, you seem to be, you know, it's, it's on retreat. And those are often the times when we are most in danger. Our guard is down. And Satan knows how to use the back end of a temptation, not just the front. If he cannot drive you down, for instance, by hedonism, just open, pouring yourself into the pleasures of this world, then maybe he can get you by hypocrisy, where your heart would really love to have all those things, and you cherish them in your heart, but you don't dare let anyone see you doing any of those things. But the love of the sin is still there. Satan can use the back end as well as the front end of temptation, and we are not to underestimate him, as it says in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. 
Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. The fact that it says sober-minded here, I think, is worth dwelling on, because so much of our culture drives towards the opposite of that. Frivolity, lightness of being, laughing, ha, ha, ha. And it's good to laugh, I don't want you to mistake But on the other hand, there is a danger that when we enter into many of our entertainments, they lull us into putting our guard down. Immediately following the laughter comes the temptation. Do not make a joke out of the way that the Lord has warned us that all of these temptations are meant to drive a wedge between you and communion with God, service to him. Again, 1 Peter 5.8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Far more time could be given to the strategies that the enemy uses, the cunning of the enemy. We simply don't have time for it tonight. I would make a recommendation, a strong recommendation. And I don't make it as being the easiest book to read. I remember a pastor putting in my hands precious remedies against Satan's devices. If there was ever a collection of sermons on spiritual warfare, that might be the best one I have ever heard of or read. Uh, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices by Thomas Brooks. I bring that before you because this is so important that we do not underestimate our enemy. And yet that is the the reality, I think, on a day-to-day basis. We often live as if Satan is out there and that his power is not, through any number of means, being made present to us. There's a second warning here, and it is just as vital as the first one. The first was a warning concerning Satan who is outside of you. The second has to do with a danger that comes from within. In this passage, the Holy Spirit causes us to remember the peril of pride and presumption. Thinking of yourself too much. In the first place, he looked at Abner and he thought too little. And then he looks at himself and Asahel thinks too much. Now, if there was somebody who had, a, I guess, a right to be confident in the flesh, Asahel is one of those men. There's a passage in Scripture, in fact, two of them, that list out David's so-called mighty men. These are the Navy SEALs of their time. These are the Green Beret. They are the mighty men, and Asahel's name is listed among them. And for that reason, perhaps, he thinks, I am an equal to Abner. But here he's so confident that he lets himself be separated unnecessarily from the enemy. He runs way out ahead of all of his comrades. Well, didn't David fight alone against Goliath? Weren't there other instances of single combat in the scripture? There is a difference. In David's case, one, no one else was willing. If you are the only one willing to take a stand for what is right, then the Lord has called you to single combat. And even then, it's not single. You do so in the strength of the Lord. But... If there are others to fight with you, the model of scripture is never to separate yourself. This is part of the reason why we need strength in Christian community together. Have we not seen this many times? Particularly, I don't mean to harp upon young people. I am a young person. But is it not often the case between the ages of 18 and 28, young people go off, they're finding their feet in the world, they leave a Christian upbringing, they go to a college, maybe even a Christian college, But pretty quickly, the cares of this world, the busyness of life, their social life, 
and then after that, their career, they allow these things to separate them from regular communion, regular edification, regular sharpening that comes from fellowship with believers. And in doing so, they are presuming upon the way the Lord works. They are in effect saying, I believe that I am strong enough to fight the Christian faith essentially alone. I don't need the renewal that God's spirit works mysteriously week by week in the context of corporate worship. I don't need the renewal that comes from accountability. Or I can have it here and there. And they run out way ahead and they are alone. And this is one of the dangers of presuming that we are stronger than we are. Then you think one of the bitterest ironies, perhaps the most bitter irony in this text. What gets Asahel killed, humanly speaking? Would he have been in this position if he were Asahel the slow? No. He's Asahel, fleet of foot like a gazelle. This is the Hussein Bolt of his time. He is known throughout Israel as the fastest. And it's his very strength, his speed, that puts him in a position of danger and causes him to think, perhaps, because I've got this strength, I have other strengths. And a miscalculation occurs about himself. It's entirely possible that our strengths that God has given to us can become a point of danger when we allow those become things that we rest in instead of in graces. Gifts are not graces in the same sense. You can have a person who has a tremendous gift, maybe to speak or to counsel. Maybe they have a great gift for music. Maybe they have a great administrative gift. Maybe they have great discernment. Those are gifts, and the gifts can be relatively operative whether or not there's a high state of grace. By that, I mean that there is sweet communion with the Lord. There's a turning away from all sin, that there's an ongoing thirst to be about the Lord's work. You can have the gifts, and yet have a low ebb of the graces. And sometimes those very strengths you have, if not coupled with dependence upon grace, actually become a point of great danger for you. The same person who has tremendous discernment is often overly direct. And they cause fractures in their home or in the church because they speak without tact. And maybe they're right, 99 out of 100 times. But there is more to Christian community, to bearing the image of Christ, than being right. Is that not true? There are plenty of other ways, which again, we don't have the time to go into all the different ways that we endanger ourselves through these things, but they are to be considered. Or the person who is gifted with sociability, they're very sociable. They seem to fit into every crowd, but then they discover that they are relatively spineless. They crave so much the opinion, the favor of people. And so things that may be a strength, we have to bring these before the Lord and say, Lord, please protect me. Please make me a rounded person. Christ was rounded. Too often I think that we, we like being identified with our strength and we neglect. You know, sometimes say, oh, that guy neglects leg day. And he's disproportionate. And there are people who spiritually do that too, right? They, they, they have no exercise on their knees. They aren't praying. But they have so much Bible knowledge. Or maybe they're doing tons of good works. But then you ask them, do you commune with the Lord? No, they don't do that. The Lord wants you as a fighter in the Lord's army to be a rounded person. And so that second warning is that our strength, if attached to presumption, becomes a great danger to us. There's a third and final lesson here. A third and a final lesson. And I want 
God willing, that this would rest upon you because it's going to be one of the issues of your Christian life, for sure. And it has been for anyone who's been a Christian here for any length at all. One person's defeat can deflate the drive of many. One person's defeat can deflate the drive of many. Picture the soldiers stacking up. And they're on the right side. And they were having a victory. It says that the victory was great that day. They've got the enemy on the run. And then they come upon Asahel's body. And they all stop. And there's a sense of horror at what they see. And a sense of, what if that happens to me? Death suddenly is very real when you see a person impaled. Especially if it's somebody that you admired, a mighty man. And the same thing happens in the church. Sometimes the seemingly mightiest among us, male and female, fall catastrophically. And the temptation is for God's people to stop there. Or for there to be suspicion sown. Remember, Abner calls back and he says to Asahel, how am I going to lift my face to your brother, this other general, my only real equal besides David, if I kill you? He understands that there are political ramifications, not just military ramifications. And there's going to be bitterness, suspicion sown for years. And we're going to see that in the chapters that come. Asahel's decision has big consequences beyond his one life. And it's the same in the church, too. If you fall, it's not just about you. That's one of the means that the Lord uses to bring us out of indifference and bring us back to genuine repentance. Sometimes, I know I'm speaking something that you have experienced if you're in the Lord because I have experienced it. Too many times to number where you're upset at a sin, but then you look down into your heart and you realize it's mainly because of the way it affects you. Love your neighbor as yourself. You're fighting with an army, not single combat. And when we fall, we have the possibility of stopping others, too, in their tracks, where they wonder, is it even worth being a Christian when they see you drive off the rails and indulge every sin? Is it worth being a Christian? Look at me at verse 17. This is the turning point in the story. But Joab and Abishai pursued Abner. That's a beautiful text. But Joab and Abishai pursued. These are the very brothers of Asael. He's their little brother. You might expect if anyone is going to halt and stop and be frozen or fall down on their knees in grief, it would be those men. But no, they see in this moment all the more reason to bring the fight. The best they can do is to plow forward. And I hope, oh God help us, that if we should see a brother or sister fall in the first place that we try to restore them, thank God in most instances when people fall into grave sin or doubt, it is not unto death. It is not an impalement like this. And even if it were in our sight, we serve the God of resurrection, and we should hope. But when that happens, it is especially incumbent on the leaders of the church, set the tempo. Do not stop. If an elder, a pastor, a deacon, 
some patriarch in the body should fall, it is necessary that the officers immediately make clear to the church, we don't slow pace. Their fall is not reflective of your calling. You keep going. You keep going. And what they experience is, nevertheless, an overall victory. We'll come to that in the weeks that come ahead from this. You see something like this in the Apostle Paul where he says, one of his own companions, one of his own assistants, Demas, he says, has forsaken me, having loved this world. Yet I press on toward the prize of the upward calling. Even as we considered this morning, you take your eyes off of that person or those people or that whole denomination, whatever it is, that you go, oh, they've fallen, and what does this mean for the church? It was never about them. The battle never hinged on an individual or any one federation or denomination. God uses these, but it hinges on the victory assured to us in Christ. And that's where these things come back to the gospel, something that I wish Asahel had considered here. God covenanted to David that he was going to be king over everything. God can't lie. David wasn't going to live forever, which means it was only a matter of time before all things were brought under his authority. And with that in mind, perhaps if Asahel had considered that more, God has covenanted, he cannot lie, it's going to happen. That wouldn't make him a timid fighter, but it would make him fight wisely to stick within the bounds of wisdom as he fights. It was still necessary to fight, but he doesn't have to go out and claim a vain, glorious victory for himself. And God hasn't called any one of us to be the force that changes the world. He's called you to be a presence in your family, your community, your workplace, to be faithful. We are, on the whole, more like Boaz, more like Ruth. Christ is our better than David. What it says in Colossians 2, 15 is true. It says concerning Jesus, he has disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Christ has defeated our enemy. He will not lose. And out of that, we are called to fight in his way. And I encourage you, brothers and sisters, be on guard against presumption. Be on guard against presumption. Ask the Lord to cultivate in you a meek, a contrite heart. In his sight, that's beautiful. When you don't feel, it should be better that others would say what your strength is and that you should feel weak. That's not a terrible thing to feel constantly weak. And may the Lord help you to put on the armor. In fact, we'll close with these words. I invite you to turn with me and look at Ephesians chapter 6. And then we'll close in prayer. It's suggested in the text, though not certain, that Asahel was wearing very little, if any, armor. Partly because of his great speed. Partly of the ease with which Abner was able to impale him. And it is the case, is it not, that we often do presume on the Lord by not putting on the armor. Consciously, every day, understanding we're going into battle. We wake up too late, we do not prepare, the fingers are pointing at me as well as you. Ephesians 6 verse 10 says, finally be strong in the Lord. And in the strength of his might, put on the whole armor of God, 
that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, and cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. You see, at the very end, it's not simply about you. It's about all the saints fighting together. Let's ask the Lord to help us even now. Heavenly Father, it is such a grief to us when any believer is greatly wounded through sin. The book of Hebrews warns us that many have pierced themselves through with sorrows and doubts by giving themselves over for a time. We pray on behalf of those, perhaps some even here, Lord, we intercede for them, that you would please restore them. You heal. Christ himself was pierced with a spear in order that we might be delivered from the judgment for our sin, for our pride and presumption. We pray that you would please restore our fallen brothers and sisters, especially any who may be under discipline at this time. Lord, please bring them back into our ranks well. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would please preserve and protect us as we wage our war, that you would teach us more and more the reality, convict us of the reality of spiritual warfare, to not fight as though against the air, but to take it seriously. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.